Welcome. Good morning. Uh, we've been up since uh, early this morning. Uh, as the sun came up, before the sun came up, we gathered uh, in, the, in the form of the, the early disciples, Mary, coming when it was still dark to the tomb, fully expecting to find the body of Jesus Christ, but in fact found the stone rolled away and the body missing, uh, and the tomb was empty, and he was alive, uh, and is alive. Amen. That's worth the round. Yeah. Yeah. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, just glad that you uh, are here with us. If you have a Bible, open it up there. If you don't have a Bible, then uh, put your hand up nice and high and uh, raise your hand and someone in the back will bring a Bible to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a New Testament letter. Uh, You can look it up in the table of contents if you don't know how to find your way there in the beginning of the Bible. There'll be a table of contents. Look up 1 Corinthians 15th chapter is where we'll be. Easter's always tough for me because we go, uh, you know, verse by verse through the whole Bible uh, through the rest of the year, and and I kind of know what I'm going to preach on each week just because we go in order. And so Easter, you know, it's like, oh, there's so many things that uh, we could talk about, so many passages, and usually I'll ask somebody, you know, what what, what do you think the Lord wants to say? What should I talk about Easter morning? And, of course, I always get somebody that looks at me and says, Jesus, that good son. Yeah, well, I think I'll talk about Jesus on, on Easter morning. You can bet on that. Uh, you know that um, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes everything else matter. Without the resurrection, the cross is, uh, was just another death of a, of a common, humiliating criminal. Um, without the resurrection, all the words of Jesus Christ were just empty. So if what we're talking about today, if what we're celebrating, and this is why we celebrate, if what we're celebrating is not true, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray, and we're going to talk about the power and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, as we open your word, um, we know that these things should uh, impact us maybe much more deeper than they do. That somehow, Lord, we go about our lives and we think little on, um, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think little on the reality. Um, Lord, so often we just want to add Christ to the rest of our good lives already. And, and so, Father, I pray you challenge us in a fresh way this morning from your word, by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. So if the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's love, and it does, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that demonstrates God's power. And I, now, for me, I, I get, I'm pretty interested in things that are powerful. I mean, I, I like power. Who doesn't like power, right? So I looked up a few things uh, last night some of the most powerful things in the world. So I thought I'd share these with you guys. If you're into computers, the most powerful computer in the world, now that probably changed like three times before we got up here this morning to to meet together. Uh, But at the time this was written, the most powerful computer is the IBM Roadrunner. Anybody heard of that before? Maybe you have one at your house. Well, they only cost about $100 million. So if you got one, I'd love to come over and surf the net on it. It has the ability to process one million billion calculations per second. It has the strength of 100,000 MacBooks combined. 
And it's so powerful that IBM estimates it would take 6 billion people armed with calculators nearly 50 years to process what the Roadrunner can achieve in one day. And it's used currently by our Department of Energy's National Security Administration for the purpose of, of modeling the aging nuclear warheads in our atomic arsenal. So that's the most powerful computer. How about uh, pepper sauce? Anybody like pepper sauce? Hot sauce? Fans? Aficionados? I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Nagaholokia pepper sauce? Anybody heard of that? Well, supposedly uh, this it has uh, powers, packs uh, 10 times more heat than jalapenos and can burn your hands, uh, let alone your tongue. So that's the most powerful. You, you can order that, look it up online. Uh, more powerful than habanero peppers as well. Naga Holokia. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. But, all right, how about most powerful weapon ever detonated? The Soviet Union detonated Big Ivan, the hydrogen bomb, and it has the ability to vaporize everything in a 40-mile radius of its target. They detonated it on a remote island in the Arctic Ocean in 1961 at the peak of the Cold War. This article says, No more powerful weapon has ever been created or even seriously contemplated as far as we know. Imagine vaporizing everything in a 40-mile radius of its target. All right, maybe if you're into um, plastic surgery and that kind of thing, uh, Botox. Anybody, you've heard of Botox injections, right? Well, maybe what you didn't know, that the botulinum toxin, or what they use for Botox, is the most potent poison on Earth. One gram of this bacteria-based poison is powerful enough to kill a million people. Did you know that? One gram of botulinum kill a million people. Uh, and finally, this is, where, you know, this is where I'm interested, the strongest creature in the world. Uh, do you have a picture up there of the strongest creature in the world? No, we'll see if that... Okay, no, that's, not, that's an attempt at being the strongest creature in the world. That's me, believe it or not, right there, when I used to be into a powerlifting. So, okay, you can take that down now. Um, that's a measly, a measly 600 pounds on that bar there. Uh, but if you're looking for the strongest creature, you don't look to human beings. You don't look to whales or elephants. You know where you look? Beetles. Not, not John, Paul, Ringo, not them. And a rhinoceros beetle can lift about 850 times its own body weight. So the world bench press record is held by a guy who weighs 350 pounds and bench pressed 1,075 pounds. But if you were to put our little buddy, the rhinoceros beetle, on a bench next to him, to outbench that rhinoceros beetle, this uh, world bench press champion would have to max out at 300,000 pounds to equal what that little rhinoceros beetle uh, pound for pound, could lift. That's the equivalent of lifting 80 Toyota Camrys. Powerful stuff, isn't it? So why do I mention all that? Why do I go through this uh, tidbits on, on power? What if you had the power uh, to conquer death? How powerful is death? When I was into weightlifting, we had a, a saying, to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Have you heard of that? To be the man, you've got to beat the man. So in other words, to be the most powerful... You have to beat the one that is the most powerful. So death is truly the most powerful. We have never been able to conquer it with all of our technology, with all of our medical advancements, with all of our scientific advancements, with all of our discoveries. 
no one ever has been able to figure out a way to overcome death. It affects 100% of all people. Now, if you or I were to, and, and we will someday get in, the, get in the ring with death, as it were, face off with death, and in ourselves, we will lose. Right? So when we talk about the power of the resurrection, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, look, I have a great resume of all these great things I've done in my life, and all of that I count as garbage. Here's what, when I boil it all down, you know, all the things I've done, all the places I've been, all the people I know, you can trash all of that. There's, at this point in my life, the Apostle Paul would say, there's only one thing I'm really interested in, and that's to know Jesus. That's all he wanted. That's what, he, at the end of his life, before the end of his life, that's what it boiled down to. I just want to, I want to know Jesus. And there's two ways that I want to know him. Number one, I want to know him. And that's not just know about him. A lot of people know about Jesus. But he said, I want to know him personally and experientially. I want to know him in the fellowship or the joint participation in his sufferings. And I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know that because if Christ is in me, then that same power that raised him from the dead dwells in me too. But a lot of people walk around pretty powerless feeling. So we'll, we'll get there by the time we finish this sermon. When I'm still figuring out where I'm going with this, but we're getting there. Um, so toe-to-toe with death, we ourselves lose. But the one who is more powerful... If, in fact, the resurrection is true, then Jesus Christ got in the ring with death. And guess who won? Jesus Christ won. He beat death. That makes who most powerful? That makes Jesus most powerful. So that all sounds good in theory. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, and and we'll talk about what this means, practically speaking. Because I'm not just into academics all this stuff has to mean something. There's got to be a reason that this is being shared. So 1 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church in a place, in a city called Corinth. The people had a lot of questions and were dealing with a variety of different issues. Paul had been there in about 51 to 52 AD, which is a mere 20 years after the uh, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he was there Um, not very long after that. And he starts out in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, just like I would today, I'm declaring to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, you took it to yourself, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, He's just reiterating, look, this is the thing that I'm declaring to you again, the thing I brought to you when I first came. And as he had come into Corinth, he brought some knowledge, he brought some truths. They listened, they heard it, they agreed with it, at least mentally. And he said, but there's a chance that maybe you believed in vain. Maybe you believe, but you didn't really believe. You've done that before. You say, yeah, yeah, whatever, I believe. But there's no real result of your belief. If you really believe something is true, you act on it. And so maybe you said you believe, but maybe you never actually acted on it. Maybe there was, it was sort of an empty belief when you, when you believed. 
And that's what he's worried about because the problem he's facing here is there's a group of people that are saying, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the things he taught and all that stuff. That all sounds fine, but this resurrection stuff, we can't buy it. We don't understand it. We don't believe it. And so that's what he's dealing with. And so he says, maybe if you're one of those that's saying we don't believe in the resurrection, maybe you believe, but maybe you didn't really believe. And so he says, this is the thing. I'm not giving you anything new. So look at verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And that first of all isn't just first in order of time. It's first in order of importance. I've, when you want to tell someone something and you only have a short amount of time and they only have a short attention span, you tell them the most important thing first and then you tell it to them again last. You say it when you're coming and you say it when you're going. It's the first thing I told you is what I'm about to tell you here. I declared this first of all. And he said, it's the same thing that I received. Paul had uh, received it. He had, he had received it not just from God himself, but I don't know if you remember in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul spent 15 days visiting with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. He hung out with them for 15 days, and they compared notes. And he said, Paul tells his experience about being saved on the Damascus Road. He says, here's what I went through. Here's what I learned from Christ. Is this, does this line up with you guys? And Peter says, oh, absolutely. This is, the things, this is what we're teaching. This is our experience after we saw Jesus when he was risen from the dead. This is what we learned. This is what we gathered. This is what we've been teaching. And they compare notes. And so Paul received from Peter, and then now he's just saying the same thing over again. I delivered to you of most importance that which I also received. And then he gives us what is probably the earliest Christian creed. Now remember, the majority of the people in the audience of the early church were illiterate. Probably 90% couldn't read or write. So what they would do is when there was a truth you wanted somebody to remember, you'd break it down into its simplest form and put it in, in a way that's easy to remember. Set it to music as a little poem, something like that. So like I come in here and I say, hey, he is risen. And you say, he's risen indeed. Like that, people just learn that over the years. That's like a little miniature creed. It's a little thing that we do that you don't have to be well-educated to, to, to remember that, right? So this is an early Christian creed. It's a truth or a set of truths that have been placed into a real simple, easily uh, memorizable, easy uh, to pass on format, probably dating back to within six months of the resurrection itself. This is really early stuff. So he says, here's what I, I gave you, here's what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the first part, the atoning death of Jesus Christ, that we had a sin problem that only Jesus could fix. And that was the first thing that was part of this creed. First thing you got to know, folks, this Easter morning, is you got a sin problem that only Jesus can fix. I don't know what you think your problem is or whose fault it is that you are in the mess that you're in. We love to blame people. If you've been with us through the study of Genesis, you've been seeing that. We love to blame people for our problem. It's the president's fault. It's society's fault. It's Anthem's fault. And I'm in some things with Anthem, but that's another story. That's my issue. It's Obamacare. It's this. It's that. It's my parents. It's where I grew up. It's I didn't have enough and uh, all these things. But ultimately, at the root of it all, Here's the first thing, that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was innocent. We were guilty. He took our guilt. 
to make us innocent. The second thing, verse 4, and that he was buried. And he, so he really died, and he was really buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's one of the earliest Christian creeds, again, probably dating back to within six months of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said, this is what I brought to you, and, and this is what is truth. You received it when I brought it to you. As long as you hold on to it, it's that truth is the truth that saves you. He goes on to, he's just confirming the truth of the resurrection. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to, to make it even more firm. I want you to see how absolutely firm and sure the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Even if you're an atheist, you have to confess that they believed with all of their hearts that they had seen the risen Christ. Look what he says next. He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over how many? Five hundred brethren at one time. And, and so, oh, that's great, Paul, but that's just your word. We're taking your word for it. After that, he was seen by over 500 people at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, what he's saying here is, by the time he's writing this letter, it's 54, 55 A.D., just a little over 20 years after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, five, not just Peter, not just the 12 apostles, uh, and not just 500 people saw Jesus alive bodily at one time, and they're still alive, a lot of them. So if you want to do your homework, go check, get their addresses, go to their house, and ask them what it was like to see Jesus Christ alive. They'll tell you. That is the most powerful, compelling um, witnesses in, in a court of law, early eyewitness testimonies to the fact that Jesus Christ actually rose bodily from the dead. So he goes on. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Verse 8 says, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. In verses 9 through 11, Paul talks a little bit about himself and what the risen Christ meant to him, uh, how it changed his life. And then he gets down to verse 12, and now's where he starts addressing directly the argument. Actually, go back to verse 11. He says, therefore, whether it was I or they, meaning me or these other apostles, whether it was Peter or John or any of these big, big names in the early church, he says, it doesn't matter. So we preach and so you believe. We all said the same thing, and you all said you believe the same thing. It doesn't matter who's preaching it. It shouldn't matter what church you go to. Unfortunately, sometimes nowadays it does. Do you know um, some estimates say that 30, more than 30% of pastors do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Filling pulpits, teaching out of God's word, and yet not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said what happened at the, uh, toward the end of, of the uh, times. He said there's going to be a form of godliness, but that, that at that time they will deny the power of God. So in some ways we, we have a little bit of that now. The form of godliness, we show up at church, we wear the right clothes, we sing the right songs, we carry the Bible, we sit in the seats, we go have all the programs and all that stuff. And that's all wonderful. So, you know, we do social things. We help people. But for them, Paul said, it's not about just those things. It's about the power. At its core, Christianity is not a human religion. It's a supernatural experience. There is a really 
power for a new life in Christ. And, and we'll talk about that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 12. Now he says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is exactly what he just said. This is the early creed. This is what we preach, that Christ has been raised from the dead. Then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we're preaching that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that the tomb is empty, and that everybody, you know, we, we, we teach it, we, people observed it, it's been studied, it's been eyewitnessed to. Then how is it there, that you are denying the fact that not just Jesus' resurrection, but resurrection at all? Is, is, how do you deny that that's true? It's what he says. If Christ has preached that he's raised from the dead, then how does some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? It wasn't just Christ that they were denying raised from the dead. It was the possibility of it happening at all. They got out their science textbooks and their calculators, and they thought, well, you know, we just, I just don't understand how it could happen. Well, thank God he's not limited by my understanding. They said, we just don't see how it's possible. And he says, how is it that, that you're saying there's no, that the dead don't rise? And look at verse 13. So he starts to play this game, this hypothetical game, like, okay, let's say what you're saying is true. Let's say that the dead don't rise. Let's see what impact that has. If the dead do not rise, look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Right? That makes plain sense, right? It's just a very logical argument. If there's no, if there's no resurrection then we can't say Christ rose from the dead because there's no resurrection, so he didn't. Again, hypothetical situation. And if Christ, verse 14, is not risen, then our, or my, preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So if Christ didn't rise, that's a hinge point. Look, it's all or nothing, church. It's this, this thing we do called Christianity, this called the church, it's all or nothing, there's no middle ground. And this is part of the problem. The church, it's why the church is so weak. Because we sort of, well, we just want to add Christ to our lives and, you know, have just enough to look religious or to feel better about ourselves. This is an absolute, it's all or nothing. So if Christ is not risen, then our preaching, then everything I've told you for the last 10 years this church has been in existence uh, and for the last 2,000 years that the church has been in existence, it's all lies if the resurrection is not true. The bodily, physical, literal resurrection of Jesus. Because what many people concede to is, well, there's a spiritual resurrection. And I'll amen that just like anybody else. There's a spiritual resurrection. You know, we become new people. Isn't that nice? And it is. It's great. Believe me, it's great. But it's more than that. Yes, verse 15, uh, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So not only that, we lie about God if, if the dead don't rise. We're lying to you about God. We're false witnesses. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And look at this, you're still in your sins. What does it mean to still be in your sins? It's like a, a location, a place where I am still um, seen through the lens of my sins. And sin brings death. So if Christ is not risen, then I still got a sin issue to deal with. And I got no other answers. Do any of you know another answer to deal with sin? It's certainly, 
you know, if you go down to the courthouse, a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm a good person, and I hope maybe my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Try that if you're on trial for murder down at the court. Right? Try telling, there's the family of the person you've murdered, and, and they're weeping and crying because their loved one, you, took, you killed them. And there's the judge, and there's you, and you stand up before the judge, and, and you, the judge says, well, what do, I, what, am I, what do I do with all this? And the judge says, or you tell the judge, well, look, judge, I know I did that, but let's, let's be real here. Look, I, I put money in the offering box at church, and, and I do, I, I work with local, you know, um, charities, and, and I help people. I try to do the best I can. You know, I'm nice to my kids, and I do all these good things. And the judge would say, well, that's great, but you're not on trial for your good things. You're on trial because you broke the law. You killed someone. You took a life. And that's what we have to judge, either innocent or guilty. It's wonderful you do all those other nice things, but that doesn't excuse the fact that you're a murderer, right? And if it did, if that judge said, oh, geez, you know, you work for the SPCA. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, now I got a dilemma. And then you turn to the family and say, you know, I'm, I, I know he's guilty, but he works for the SPCA. You know, he's, he's got to be a good guy, so I think we should let him go. What would they say to that? They would say, that is not justice. That is not fair. Right? So if Christ is not risen, then I'm still in my sins. I still got a sin issue that I don't know what to do with. I have no other answer for it. Then my expectation, look at it, he goes on to say here, for if the dead, verse 16, do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. People that have already died, if Christ isn't risen, they are uh, experiencing eternal destruction because they died in their sins. Again, this is the core issue, is our, our disobedience toward God and, and that Christ took care of, but if he didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't take care of it. And look at verse 19, and this is where we'll go a couple different directions. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So he says, if, if in this life only, look at that word only. Only means there's another choice. If, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. That means we have hope in Christ in this life, right? There is hope in Christ in this life. Jesus Christ changed my life. Absolutely I was buried with him in baptism, right? I, was, when I joined my life to him. I, was, I died with him, and I was raised again to have a new life. Now, this is what Paul talks about when he says, I want to understand that power, that power of the resurrection. It's a power to change a life. Now, think about this for a second. Some of you know uh, I've shared my story in, in a number of ways uh, about my inability, my, my terrible ability to swim. When I was young, I almost drowned, scared of the water. I had to go through that embarrassment. How many of you grew up having swimming as part of your gym class? Anybody? When I grew up, swimming was part of our gym class. Our school had a pool, and, and around the, the pool area, we'd all get changed, you know, into our bathing suits, the whole class, and I'm probably, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, something like that, and you get out to where the pool is and the instructor's in there and everybody has to line up under these paintings along the wall, right? This is the why, why I'm such a mess today. Uh, and the paintings went around the room from over on this side, there was a turtle, 
and a frog and a minnow and all the way around the room, these different abilities, uh, these different um, fish and things. All the way to over here was like a shark and a dolphin, right? And so most of the class was somewhere over on that wall. You have to line up. You got, you know, you, you got tested, and however good you were at swimming, you'd have to line up under your sea creature, right? So there's my friends over there uh, under the shark and under the dolphin, and me and a guy named Max Finkelstein who had cerebral palsy were under the turtle, right? That meant we could get our face wet, but that was about it. I'm still, it was their fault, I'm sure of it, still struggling with that. I moved up to frog. I was able to jump in and jump back out again. I did progress. So, but now I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to be a better swimmer, so I'm going down to the pool. And so for me, swimming, it's like I just sink. You know, it's right to the bottom. And, and so there I get in and then boom, right to the bottom. And, and that's where I'm immersed in the water. Uh, I die. I mean, I'm just, I just, I'm a terrible swimmer. So boom, down I go to the bottom. I die there. Now... Who's the best swimmer you can think of? We all probably think of Michael Phelps, right? So here comes Michael Phelps, my savior. He jumps in the water, dives down to the bottom, right? He gets in. He's immersed with me. I'm immersed with him. And there we are at the bottom. He, not just, he, he breathes his life into me, right? He, he revives me resurrects me in a way because I'm dead at the bottom. I can't swim. I can't do anything. I'm just lying at the bottom, lifeless. Jumps in into my pool, into my wall. He, res- breeze, he, he rescue breeze into my mouth, brings me back to the surface, right? And I, and I revive and I'm alive. And so that's great, right? That's wonderful. He saved me. But it goes beyond that. See, now he's breathed not just any life into me, but he's breathed his life, if he could, right? I don't know if Michael Phelps will ever hear this uh, sermon. I don't know. Maybe he'll appreciate it. Maybe he'll get saved. If Michael Phelps isn't saved, you need Jesus, Michael Phelps. Uh, I don't know. But if he had the ability to breathe his spirit, his life into me, would I be able to swim? Well, if if he could truly breathe his life into me, that would not just give me the ability to be alive, which would be good enough, right? But it would give me the ability to become the same kind of swimmer he is if he could give me his life. Now, you would never know that. Listen, so the first thing I had to do, because what if I was in the water trying to rescue myself, right? And I was flailing around and flailing around, and nobody's going to try to save me. If you're a, if you're a lifeguard, you know you've got to wait till that person calms down. If, they, if you try to save someone who's drowning... Before they're ready to be saved, they'll knock you out and you'll both go down. So you've got to wait till they give up. And then you can rescue them. And that's the first step to see the power of God in this life, in your life, is you've got to give up. You've got to stop flailing, stop trying, stop working, stop laboring to save yourself. And you give up. And you die to yourself. You lose your life. This is what Christianity is about. It's not just being a better you. It's a whole new life. I didn't just become a better Steve. The people that I knew when I was in college before that, they would not know. I mean, this this guy that you know, he's a new creation. I'm a new man because of Christ. So the first thing, I got to die. He breathes his life to me. He sits me up on the edge of the pool, and there I am. I'm alive. 
But now if I don't do anything, we'll never know how much power to swim I really have. So what do I have to do next? I got to get back in the water and start swimming. And that's when the power of Michael Phelps is recognized in my life. See, because the people that knew me before knew that I couldn't swim. And now all of a sudden I get in and I start freestyling it and I'm cruising along the water to the other end of the pool like it's nothing. And they go, whoa, he's different. Something has changed in his life. I got the spirit of Michael Phelps, man. Michael Phelps will come into your life too and make you a great swimmer. But you would never know unless I actually started to do. Now, now I could... Michael Phelps saves me, sits me on the side of the pool, and I could go out to the gym over at Health Nuts, and I could get under the bench press and start bench pressing and go, wait a second, I'm no stronger than I used to be. Right, Michael Phelps didn't give me a spirit to bench press. He gave me a spirit to swim. So the point is, number one, you got to stop fighting and die. Number two, you got to start doing the things that Christ would do. You see, if I got the spirit of Michael Phelps, I start to swim. That's when the power of Michael Phelps is seen in me, when I start to swim. That's when it becomes observable and real. In the same way, but but not when I start to bench press. In the same way, when is the power of Christ going to be seen in your life? When you try to do the things that Christ would do. That's when you find the power of God available to you. The Apostle Paul said, Here's, here's when I found out how strong I was. It was when I was most weak. That's when I saw the power of God. When you do that thing you're most weak at, that Christ wants you to do, that's when you'll find the power of God. In this life, yes, in this life, we have hope because of the Spirit of God giving me, I was buried with Him in baptism. I was raised not to walk in my old life, but to walk in in a whole new quality of life. You want to see the power of God in your life? You want to, see, you want to save your life? Then you've got to lose it. If you want to lose your life, then try to hold on to it. There is only one, look, I can't tell you this enough. There is only one way to actually live the Christian life, and that is all the way. Not just Jesus. Too many people try to make us God and Jesus just serve us. It's for God just to do what we ask him to do. And you'll never see the power of God that way. The only way for you to experience the power of God is to start, is to be saved, to let him rescue you, to give up your, give up your life. Give up your life. And then let him take it over. And then you watch the power of God work. So, in this life, yes, if in this life only, and we do have hope in Christ in this life only, I am a new man because of Jesus Christ. And some of you in here are as well, aren't you? How many people in here are new people because of Jesus Christ? You've seen the power of God at work in your life. But he says, if that's all the hope we have, then we're still pitiful. Where is this other hope for? This other hope is not just for this life. Turn over with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Just go to the end of the chapter. Because the question still comes, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Look down at about verse 54. He goes through the rest of this chapter all about the resurrection, all about the bodily resurrection. If bodily resurrection is true, then how in the world does it look? I mean, I don't want to come back with a zombie body, right? 
I don't want to just die and have some kind of old decaying body. What, you know, I understand maybe our spirits live on, but my body. Yes, the Bible clearly tells you and clearly tells me that you will have a body. I don't know if you picture angels' wings and floating on clouds with little trumpets and little, you know, little fat babies and that kind of thing in heaven. Uh, I don't know where those pictures come from, but uh, the the Bible teaches you are going to have a body, a physical body. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, in other words, this body is destined for the grave, right? This body is corruptible, but someday it'll put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on immortality. Then, circle that word, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you want to hear something really gross? Why, do you, why is it that we go, yeah, yeah, I want to hear something really gross. So the other night we're sitting and, and watching a little movie on the computer, and, uh, and it was dark, we had the lights down, and I felt something. I was eating a cho- My parents had sent me an Easter basket, and the Easter basket was chocolate-covered pretzels. Anybody else like chocolate-covered pretzels? Oh, yeah, love chocolate-covered pretzels. So it's in the dark. Uh, my, my son is next to me, my wife on the other side. We're watching the movie, eating my chocolate-covered pretzel. And I feel something on my shirt, like right here. And I thought, you know, how the chocolate just kind of breaks off of the pretzel, and it lets loose, and it fell. And I wouldn't want to waste any chocolate, right? So not thinking, I, I feel the chocolate right? Or what I think is chocolate on my shirt. So I just kind of go just like that, right? It wasn't chocolate. Anybody want to guess what it was? It was a stink bug. It was a stink bug. I ate him. I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, water, water, water. Naga jalapeno sauce, wherever it is, something to sterilize. I need something. I couldn't believe it. That's like swallowing death. And death stinks. But look at what he says here, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death, a stink bug, is swallowed up. Jesus took death and he ate it. He swallowed it whole. And then Paul, because that's true, Paul takes the opportunity to taunt death. Remember, we talk about how powerful death is, right? To be the man, you got to beat the man. Paul says, Jesus is the man. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost like Paul is toe-to-toe face-to-face, not in his own power, but the power of Jesus Christ. He looks death right in the face. He says, oh yeah, death, boom, pokes him in the chest. Where is your sting? You got nothing. Oh grave, where's your victory? Because the resurrection is true, he says, grave, death, you are a loser. You're a loser. And I'll go toe-to-toe with you anytime, not on my strength, but on the strength of the surety Uh, of Jesus' resurrection, and his resurrection means my resurrection. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, grave, where is your victory? You've got nothing. You are defeated. And he just, I love it, just 
man, you want to be tough, you get in the face of death and say, you've got nothing on me. Now, it doesn't feel that way now, does it? Because he says back in, in uh, verse 54, he says, when this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying. At the funeral, death has a sting, doesn't it? We feel that sting. But when we meet each other on the other side, and that's when we'll know, that's when we'll say, no sting, I'm alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who dies, don't believe it. Now, the challenge in a group like this is, I, I don't know, some of you are visiting here for the first time, some of you have been brought by friends or family, and I don't know how you answer the question, where am I going to go when I die? I don't know what you would say to that, and I don't know why you would say what you would say, what your reasoning is, what you've thought it through. The truth is, everybody is resurrected. Everybody lives forever. And the Bible is clear that some people live forever with God, and some people live forever apart from God, in eternal destruction, in eternal depravity, uh, not a pretty sight. And what you do with Jesus Christ, what you do with the message you're hearing today, that's what he says. These are the truth. Look, I'm going to reiterate it one more time. Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's amazing to me that God himself got involved in the sin problem of the world and did something about it. He didn't have to. But love compelled him to. I can't imagine. This is God. He created everything. He needs nothing. And yet, he chose to love me. Not because I was lovable, but because he is love. And he chose to love me. And he loved me so much that he said, there is no cost too great to pay for you and I to be reconciled. There's no cost too great. I will take every barrier out of the way, every stumble, anything that's in the way, I will take it out of the way. There's no price too great. Even to my own life, I'll lay down my own life for you. So Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. It's from the earliest time in the Christian church. Jesus died. He rose. The question is, do you believe it? And if you believe it, it'll change your life now and forever. If you don't believe it, it'll change your life now and forever. It comes down to that simple, simple question of do you believe? Do you believe? It's true. It really is true. Otherwise, I'm a liar. And otherwise, you just wasted a good hour of your day. But that's not true, is it, folks? I fully intend, I fully expect to see you all, those of you that are saved, and to see Jesus Christ face to face in a body someday when we're all raised to life, when the grave just gives up all of those buried. How's that going to work? Man, I have no idea. I have no idea. But I truly believe the word of God. Amen? He is risen. Let's pray. Father, uh, if, in some ways, Lord, we couldn't be more unsure of the mystery of life after death. And in other ways, Lord, because we have your word, because we have that historical confidence, that word of God confidence in the resurrection, 
In, in that way, Lord, we couldn't be more sure of what we believe. So, Lord, I pray that as those here contemplate and consider the things of eternity, that um, they would be moved to consider where their hope is and whether or not what you said was really true when you said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. That your resurrection confirmed everything you said is true, everything we believe is true. And Lord, I don't know where else someone would have hope. I don't know who else has the words of eternal life. So Lord, I pray um, for this group that we would experience in its fullness the power, uh, the mighty working power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives as you lead us to live the life of Christ in, in these bodies, Lord, in these lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.